You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and make your way to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 9 through 20. If you have your app, go ahead and open that up. If you use the YouVersion app, I have put a ton of extra stuff in there because <clears throat> it's just more that I'm going to be getting to. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in front of you in that uh, seat tray. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. There's a whole table full of resources back there with Bibles and Jesus Storybook Bibles and other things to help you study and know the Word of God. So on your way out, grab one of those. It's our gift to you. Let's go ahead and read God's Word together. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. It says, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God, all have turned away, all alike have become worthless, there is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whether the law says, excuse me, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Lord, help us. Let us pray. God, as we seek to hear from you in difficult words, in joyful words, in encouraging words, in rebuking words, Lord, may we be people who are surrendered to your word, transformed by your word. May we see your will in your word. And may we see the blessing that you have for your people in your word. Help me to preach this well this morning. Help us to receive it well. In Jesus' name, amen. We decided for this series that we are going to go through Romans pericope by pericope. That's just a fancy word for, for a unit of text and to help you understand and to help some study and whatnot. Maybe this was not the best choice, but we decided to follow the pericope headings of the CSB translation of the Bible. And just we're just going to go a section at a time. So if you haven't noticed, if you're reading ahead, that's how we're doing it, if you use the CSB. Now, I thought that was a good idea until this week. <laughs> I would not have broke the text up in this way. I don't know very many preachers that go, I have a great idea. Let's call the saints together, let's open the word, and then read lines like, their throat is an open grave. <laughs> no one is righteous. No one understands God. All have become worthless. What in the world am I supposed to do? I, I would have taken on a, a bigger section that then turns to the good news here, but I'll tell you what's happened in this. The study of this and looking at this has shown me something remarkable, because God's word has profitable things for us, even if they're words like that. 
And so we're going to walk through this text this morning, and we're going to see what God has for us, just a little at a time. And I hope the Lord will help me to communicate in such a way that you will be encouraged by such a difficult word as what we've just heard. So let's just go through it together. Paul opens right off the bat in verse 9. He says, what then? Now, if you remember, we've been going through his building of an argument that we're all sinners, that we, everybody has sinned, everybody has problems, the world is crazy, the world needs... We, that's what he's been saying this whole time, all the way up to this point. And he says, okay, for what then? Are we any better off? And he's referring to himself and the Jewish people. He's talking specifically to his Jewish readers. Are we any better off? You know, because we're the Jewish people. And they might have had good reason to think they were better off. it would have been easy to think maybe they were better off. For starters, they were the people that were chosen by God to be priests and missionaries to the whole world. God was looking for his representatives. He said, it's going to be you guys. I'm building you up. You guys are going to be my representatives to the whole world. So they might have thought, oh, of course we're better off. Also, God entrusted them with the revelation that he is revealing himself to mankind. He entrusted them with his revelation to the entire world. They called it the law and the prophets, which included the wisdom literature. Basically, it was our Old Testament. They were entrusted with this. So yeah, of course they think maybe we're better off. We are the people who God could entrust with his word. They had the temple. The only place in which God was at that time supposed to be worshipped in the way that he was worshipped, and they had the temple ceremonies, and they administered those ceremonies. So up until A.D. 70, at least, they said, of course, we're better off. We have all this stuff. Look, it, it shows us that we're better off. And then if that wasn't enough, the rabbis of the day used to teach at this time period that man was not in bondage to sin. And, and of course, we know people still teach this today. Man is not in bondage to sin. He has the, the free will to choose and do good as long as he obeys the rules correctly and he follows the law perfectly. And, and if that can happen, then you're guiltless. But wait a minute, who had the law? The Jewish people. So if anybody was going to be better off, it was going to be them, right? So of course, they're thinking they're better off. And we see this, if you remember the guy, I'm sure you do, in Luke 18. The rich ruler comes to Jesus. He says, hey, what must I do to be saved? Remember that question? And then he starts boasting on himself that he's followed the law from his youth. He's great. So first I say, why did you bother asking? Apparently you already knew the answer. You just wanted to show off in front of Jesus. That's what you were really doing. Of course, Jesus had other plans, sends him away sad, says, sell your possessions, live differently. Anyway, The attitude of the people was, I have the law, and I follow the law, and I'm good. It's all good. I'm better off. The rabbis were teaching it. The people believed it. That was the the statement of the day. The Jews are better off. We're doing pretty good. That hasn't changed. There are still Christians, Christians today that will argue that the Jewish people were saved or are saved through the obedience of the law and through their special status rather than by faith. You, I can find Christians today. You can Google this. You can read books. The Jewish people are saved in some other way. That's how it was in the Old Testament, they say. That's how it is today. There's something different for them. They're better off. And we have some people that will even argue 
that Jewish people today who reject Jesus for salvation will still be justified when they stand before God. They will get a free pass because they are somehow different. That's a prevalent argument. You can find it very easily. I would challenge you to do so. The argument is somehow the Jews are more better off than the Gentiles when it comes to salvation. It would be easy for the Jewish people then to think that they were better off. If we were Jewish people then, and we were looking at the Gentile world in that day, it would be easy for us to believe that we somehow have it easier, we have it better. If we were to look at the Gentile world, we would see that Gentiles were worshiping false gods. Oh, look at them. They don't, they don't do the right thing. They don't have the right God. Their practices are terrible. But look at us. We're doing it right. It'd be easy to say, oh, look at them and their sexual revolution. They're engorged with all sorts of sexual behavior, all kinds of wrongs. They even had temple prostitutes and whatnot. Look at that. We don't do that, so we're better off. They've got a real problem out there. Anything goes, oh, we're different. The Gentiles had a different politic. They believed in a different approach to how things should be governed. The Gentiles had a different worldview. It would be easy if we were Jewish then to think that maybe we are better off. And that brings us back to Paul's question to the Jewish people, and I think even to us in many ways, are we any better off? Paul has been arguing from the very beginning that everyone, all people, everyone are guilty. And he says here, and are under sin. Jews and Gentiles. They're all, all of us, every single person is under sin. And by being under sin, he's painting a picture for us. We get the picture of the yoke that's upon the work animal or upon, you know, the one who's working this big yoke. It's the yoke of slavery to sin. He's going to talk about that in Romans 7, 14. When he says we're under sin, he's also painting a picture that we're under the power of sin. I don't think I need to explain what that's like. I think most of us know what it is to be under the power of sin. And he mentions that power and being under it in Galatians 2, or excuse me, 3.22. Everyone is under sin. Everyone. No one's better off. No one will stand before God with any better position or any free pass, or any get-out-of-jail card on their own merit, or in what family they were born to, or in what people they are, and what nation they lived in, or what they did in their life to fulfill the works and the law. Everyone is under sin. Here's where it gets really interesting. Paul's talking to Jews specifically, it would seem, and he's not sharing anything they shouldn't already know. They should absolutely know this because it's already been discussed and written about and professed in Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the law, and in the prophets. He's making a biblical argument. This is nothing new. He's only saying what God has already said. Because in the section between verse 10 and verse 18, and maybe in your printing it's bold to show you that it comes from the Old Testament. It kind of looks like poetry because most of it comes from the Psalms. He just starts quoting the Old Testament. He just stacks it up. Here's what he's quoting from in these just few verses. He's quoting Psalm 14, 1 through 3, which is also identical, if you want to put them side by side, to the opening of Psalm 53, 1 through 3. He's quoting from Ecclesiastes 7.20. 
It's quoting from Psalm 5 9, Psalm 104 3, Psalm 10 7, Psalm 36 1, and Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. If you're using the YouVersion app, you can read all those. We just plugged them in, you can look at them all right there. He's quoting Scripture and he's not interjecting any of his own stuff. He just stacked up what's already been said by God. And then he has this critical summary statement. In verse 20, look at your Bible, put your eyes on or on the screen and look at this. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. I want you to hear that. I'm going to read it again. No one will be justified in his sight, God's sight, by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. I think Paul must have understood at this point what his readers were thinking. He must have understood the logical question that would be coming. You just said no one has advantage. The law won't do it. You're not going to be justified before God if you keep the law. What's the logical question then? Well, what in the world is the law for? Why have the law if it doesn't help us? That's the question, right? He answers that objection right here in the verse. He tells us what the law is for. He said the knowledge of sin comes through the law. How does that work? Well, the law shows us, first of all, that we are sinning against the lawgiver. We are not the lawgiver, and we see in the law that we are sinning against him. And, and I probably should clarify, just we're not talking about the rules of the nation, although that did parallel with the rules of the nation. We're talking about when they say the law... A couple of possible things here. One would be the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, were for sure included in the law. So we get the Ten Commandments and all sorts of other things like that. But it also included the history that we read about, and it included the wisdom literature, which is Ecclesiastes and Job and the Proverbs and the Psalms and the Song of Solomon, which my son just read and said, well, that was a lot. Um, <laughs> Those were included. Now I owe you a dollar. I'm sorry. I used you as an illustration. I owe you a do- It was a well worth dollar. It was worth it. Um, the Bible has a lot in it. They called all of that the law. And then they would say the law and the prophets. Okay, that's how they discuss the Old Testament. Or if they don't say the law and the prophets, which the prophets are the prophetic books. If they don't say the law and the prophets and they just say the law, they're referring to the whole package. They're talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. So what is the law for? The law is to show us our sin. The law is to show us that we are sinning against a holy law giver. We get some commentary about what the law is for in Galatians 3.24. In that verse, it says that the law is our guardian, in some translations, or schoolmaster. I think that word really in, in its original really is showing us, it's protecting us and teaching us. The law teaches us what sin is. The law is showing us. This is what it is. This, is. this is what we're talking about here when we talk about sin. But here's the thing. It also teaches us that the law is not what condemns us. We are not condemned because of the law. We are condemned because of sin. The law shows us what sin is. Sin is what condemns us. Sin is our transgression or our violation against God's will. 
a trespass against his boundaries. You can come this far, don't come further. You've trespassed against it. Treason against the king. That's what sin is. And we are condemned by the sin. And I can prove it to you. They were condemned before they had the law. God spoke to Adam. He said, this is, this is my will. And then when he violated, when Adam violated that, he was punished. Adam didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have something written out that he could read and go back and consult, that they could go, hold on, let's take a look at the rules. before. Maybe you're playing a game. Usually in our house it has to do with one of the weird variations of Uno, because there's a million of them. And we go, wait a minute, is that how that works? Let's consult the rules. Let's get it right. They didn't have that. Adam didn't have that. I was told... I didn't do what I was told. I sinned. He had spoken instruction, though, which was a lot more than a lot of the other people before Moses had the Ten Commandments and had God revealing himself. Think about when Abram lied about Sarai being his wife. He said, she's my sister. Tell everybody she's my sister so they don't kill me. And Pharaoh took Sarai as his wife. And then God punished Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh sinned against God. Pharaoh sinned. He didn't have the rules ahead of time. He might not even have known. He did know somehow. Probably wired into him in some way. Or he realized because he said, get her out of here. We're not going to do that again. It was a sin. Or how about Sodom and Gomorrah? They were destroyed before God gave the law because their cities were filled with sin. It is not the law and having that rule that condemns us. It's sin. The law shows us what the sin is. We read about all those things. We can read about that and so much more in the Law and the Prophets, our Old Testament. It's there to show us what the consequences of sin are. The law is not the problem. Sin is. Paul addresses this in Romans 5. 13, we're going to get there at some point as we go through the book of Romans. He does point out that it is the law that causes sin to be counted against us. We can see that it's sin and, and it's tallied up against us. But he also says death, the consequences of sin, spiritual and physical death, still reigned, he said, from Adam to Moses before God gave the law. Sin is the cause of death for those who've never heard the law. Sin is the cause of death because we have an imputed sin nature from Adam. And it doesn't matter if you've ever heard of Adam or not. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's true. That's how it goes. Sin is the problem. Period. Whether you know or not, whether you have a written record or not, sin is the problem. The law also teaches us, and I'll just say the Old Testament certainly, the New as well, but for them, the Old Testament also teaches us that the law is absolutely incapable of saving us. Keeping the rules, following the law, if I do this, I'm good, I can get God to be at peace and he'll be happy if I just do this. The Old Testament shows us the law is incapable of saving us because it also shows us we are incapable of keeping the law. I mean, have you read the Old Testament? We are incapable, just like every other person in the Old Testament that was incapable. And even the most hardcore rule followers can't keep it all. 
They can't do it all the time. They can't do it their whole life. And here's the real catch. <clears throat> James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So you work and you strive and you toil your whole life to keep all the laws and you have one little tiny stumble. It says you're guilty of breaking it all. And I know, I know some of you are like my wife, and my wife said I could share this. You're hardcore rule followers. <laughs> hardcore. Something about that that says, I think I could do it. I, let me tell you a little bit about my wife. She said I could share. I wish I was like this, so I, I don't see this necessarily as a negative. I'm not like this. So out here this morning, you came into the parking lot and you saw that we have a loading zone. And it's got yellow stripes. You're not supposed to park in a loading zone, right? And then you saw that there was a bunch of disability stalls, you know, the wheelchair, the blue thing. You're not supposed to park there. And then there's a couple of signs that say guest parking. In the middle of the week, when the only people that are here, or maybe me, maybe Pastor Josiah, maybe Robbie's here, maybe he's not. There's one or two cars out there. My wife will drive all the way down to the, past all that, and park. And I'll say, why are you parking down there? And she'll say, because the signs and the rules. <laughs> what? First of all, we enforce those rules. So that's why my car's parked right in the front in the loading zone at Monday through Friday. Nope, not my wife. We're going to follow the rules. I bet back when you went to Blockbuster, she never took a video that was not rewound. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> what's, what's Blockbuster? It's a place with rules. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. I've been married to my wife for over two decades. And I know that even if she were to try to follow all the rules and all the instruction of the law given from God, she slipped once in a while. She's had some slips, and right now you want to know what they are. <laughs> You're going to have to ask her, because there's no way I'm doing that from the pulpit. Because I love her, and I love my life. But even the most serious rule follower, hands down, still slips up. Every little once in a while, and we found out that if you even slip up one time in your entire life, you're condemned. And we just heard no one does what is good. Verse 12. We'll see next week. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23. Not a single person except Jesus Christ has ever lived and been capable of keeping the law. And therefore the law and doing everything you possibly can to keep it will not save you. Every single person. Every single person who is and who will ever live, except for Jesus Christ, has broken the biblical law in one way or another. We've all done it. And if you're saying, I've never done it, you just did it. <laughs> That's lying and pride. Just putting it out there. So now we're back to Paul's original point through the first three chapters of this book. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short. We are all guilty before God. And his point is that we need a Savior. Why has 
Paul spent three chapters setting up this argument. You might say, well, this is rather excessive. Why has he spent three chapters? It's because that's the problem, and the entire reason for writing the book is the solution. He needs us to have that really firmly grounded before we transition at verse 21 into the rest of his argument. You know, it takes 12 minutes. That's it. It takes 12 minutes to read about the problem, the sin, in the book of Romans. Twelve. I mean, you could have that before I'm done with the sermon. You could sit there and read the first three chapters. 12 minutes. And then it takes 18 minutes. That's it. 18 minutes to read about the solution, salvation. That gets you all the way to verse 12. Excuse me, chapter 12. 12 minutes to read about the problem. 36 minutes to read about the solution. And then 18 minutes to read about what a life transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ should look like for the Christian. 66 minutes to read the book of Romans. Unless you're a faster reader than me. You probably are, because I'm kind of slow. 66 minutes. That's because this letter was originally intended to be read in one sitting, probably in the gathering of the saints. It's like a 66-minute sermon from Paul. So three chapters on the problem isn't that much, is it? His point in the first 12 minutes that he's made 15 times is that everyone is a sinner and everyone needs a Savior. And his readers should have known that from Scripture. And his readers should have believed that. And we are his readers. And so we've been spending sermon after sermon after sermon in this first 12-minute section of three chapters. And can you believe it? Most of us still struggle to believe that we're sinners. We know it in our head, but do we really know it? Most of us struggle to think we're desperate for a Savior. We know it in our head. I'm glad I have Jesus, but do we really know it? Paul has been driving this point home, inspired by God. The things we've heard this morning are said from a God who loves us. No one does good. They deceive with their tongues. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are their path. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The next few chapters aren't going to mean too much to us if we don't really, really believe these first three chapters. That's hard for a preacher to stand up here and say, hey, church, I love you, but we're all sinners. That's not in most of the church growth books you read. But this is what God has for us this morning. It's what God has. Because we should know from Scripture this truth, and we should feel a deep, deep deep-rooted need for a Savior. Paul quoted from Isaiah 59 to show his readers of the day and for us that we're all sinners. Did you know we can also see that the problem is in the Old Testament, but so is the solution? And we can even see it from Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 shows us there is a Savior. If you would do me a a favor and just turn there, I want you to see it for yourself. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2, and then we'll look at 15 through 20. It's on page 655 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. Back in the Old Testament, it's, 
It's in the prophets part of the law and the prophets. Isaiah 59. I want to start with just verse 1 and 2 so you understand what this whole section is about. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. They say, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and His ear is not too deaf to hear. Oh, but verse 2. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hardened His face, or excuse me, hidden His face from you, so that He does not listen. He is strong and powerful and can save. His arm is not too weak, but your sins condemn you. And then it goes on for a number of verses from which Paul quoted that said, this is what man is. This is why you need a Savior. And then it picks back up. Picks back up in verse 15. And part of it is still the conclusion. And then the second half of it is where it transitions. 15 says, truth is missing. Truth is missing. I don't believe truth. Sinners are struggling. It's not, hey, kindness is missing, love is missing, community is missing, freedom is missing. Truth! Truth from God. And the truth is that we're sinners. Truth is missing. And whoever turns from evil is plundered. But then this, the Lord saw that there was no justice and he was offended. So he said, this isn't right. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. So his own arm brought salvation, and his own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, so he will repay according to their deeds, fury to his enemy, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the coasts and islands. They will fear the name of the Lord in the west and his glory in the east. For he will come like a rushing stream driven by the wind of the Lord. But oh, verse 20, praise the Lord for verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. Right there in our Old Testament, we see that we are sinners and we see there is a Redeemer. And he is God. And Paul is building on that argument. He is saying, it is not the law that saves, it is this God. You cannot save yourselves, only this God can save you. You need a Savior. And then, inspired by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul gives us more revelation from God. We get more detail. Turn back to Romans. I should have told you to keep your finger there. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. Following the law won't do it. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. And then Paul gets to say this. I want to read verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. And now you know what he's talking about. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, To all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He just gave us the name of the Redeemer from Isaiah 59. 
God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declared righteous, the one who has faith in him. The one who has faith in Jesus will be saved, will be declared righteous. It is Jesus who saves. God's arm is strong. We are sinners. We need a Savior. And Paul has just showed us by building on the argument that God has already presented that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. I want to just bring out two things from this, which I'm going to be preaching all next week. I mean, that's the beauty of this process. You know what we're going to be talking about next week? 21 through 26, Jesus saves. Praise the Lord, we're finally out of you're all sinners, and there's a Savior. I want to highlight two things here. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been attested by the law and the prophets. It's right there in the Old Testament. It's always been there. It's always been known. The God of yesterday, today, and forever has been making the same claim from the very beginning and will to the very end. We need a Savior. In verse 22, it says the the righteous of God, those people who've been saved. Righteous is about being made justified or right before God. You're in good standing. It comes to sinners through Jesus... It says, to all who have faith, or to all who believe. And believing here, he means that you believe that you are a sinner. You believe that your salvation is through Jesus by the power of God. You believe that this is the truth that was lacking. It's the revelation to us. You believe that it's not your obedience to the law that saves you. But it's Jesus' perfect obedience in your place. He did it for you, and it was credited to you as righteousness. It says if you believe that, he will save you. And he did all that for you when you were still the wretched sinner, because that is love. We all need a Savior. That's Paul's point. We all need a Savior, and in the next verse, the next section, he's going to tell us his name is Jesus Christ. What are the ramifications of Paul's arguments? What, what should we see from this? I have four things The first is that when we realize that we're all sinners and that we all need God's grace, we can stop working out our salvation. You can stop toiling under the law. You can stop trying to appease God by doing something over here that you saw over there. You can trust that Jesus has saved you, and then when you can do that, you can rest assured in Christ. You can enjoy Him more. You can love Him because you know that you are loved. When we understand this reality, it allows us to worship Jesus in spirit and truth. Number two, this should remind us that salvation is open to all tribes, all nations, all languages, and all people. Paul is arguing that no one race is better off than anybody else. Nobody has a better handle. Nobody has a better special thing because the nation they were born in or because of the color of their skin, which also means no one is worse off because of the color of their skin or the nation from where they come. 
All, everyone needs Jesus Christ because we're all sinners. Every one of us. And this shows us that salvation is open to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And we see in Revelation there will be someone from every one of those places and every one of those people worshiping God. And so I hope that maybe even right now God is using that to call you or to encourage you to go to all tribes, nations, peoples and proclaim the salvation they've never heard of. It would be my great joy to lay hands on you as a church and commission you to go to every end of the earth, all corners, all places, and proclaim the gospel. Or it might be motivating you to stay right here and go across the street and tell your neighbor, tell your coworker, tell your family member, because everyone needs Jesus. Number three, when we see that we need grace and patience from God because we were wretched sinners, it should make it a lot easier for us to offer grace and patience to others, to love them. When we realize that we also needed what others need, so it should help us to love the people that God loves and love the people that we struggle to love because we too are horrible wretches in need of that love from God. And finally, if you are a sinner in here without Jesus, now there's, there's two categories here, sinner saved by Jesus, sinner who rejects Jesus. One of those is in a lot of trouble. One of those is in tremendous, tremendous peace. If you have Jesus, you should rest assured you're saved. Jesus took your sin that condemns you and traded your sin for his righteousness so that you can enjoy God forever. But if you are a sinner who rejects Jesus, that exchange hasn't happened, and your sin still rests on you and you still stand condemned. Sinner, you need Jesus today. Every sinner needs Jesus. Some of them still reject him. And I'm going to say this. I don't. We're already in a challenging, convicting text. Showing up at church isn't having Jesus. Growing up in Sunday school isn't having Jesus. Reading your Bible isn't having Jesus. Having Jesus means you have Jesus. The Bible shows us you have him, a person, not a task, because doing the tasks is the law. You need a savior. You need to know him. Sinner, do you know him? Has he traded your sin for his righteousness? If you're even wondering if that's the case for you, whether you're a member of this church, whether you've been here forever, whether it's your first day, whether you're watching online, whether you know or you, you're just wondering, Get it right today. Today is your day. So seek that out with the Lord. And the easiest way to do that is to talk with someone in whom he's living and saving. Turn to the somebody that you say, that person's a Christian. What must I do to know Jesus? And hopefully, if you're one of those Christians, you know how to answer that question. If you don't, let's get that sorted out so that you can be available to preach the good news to sinners who need a Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful 
that you are not too weak to save, and that you save sinners, and that you get the glory for it. God, we confess here that we still sin. We confess here that we still try to follow the rules to make that right. Lord, please forgive us for that as individuals, as a church. Thank you for your patience and grace over and over and over again in that. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you would put our sin and our condemnation on your son who didn't deserve any of it so that we could be saved. And Lord, because of that, we worship you. We praise your son. And Lord, I, I, I beg you that you would give us opportunities to proclaim this message of hope to the world around us everywhere we go. Lord, as we respond in the taking of the Lord's Supper and remembering what you've done and in worship, Lord, let us truly see that we are sinners in need of a great Savior. It's in Jesus' name. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit RedeemingLifeUtah.org.